I'm Stephen McVeigh. I'm one of the Paediatric Intensive Care Registrars. I'm currently working in Glasgow and doing my PICU grid. And I've kindly been invited along today to chat to you about acute asthma. So acute asthma is something that a lot of you will be very au fait with and will have seen very commonly. Um, a, lot of, a lot of you will see many cases of it every year. And fortunately, the medical management that is done prior to ICU referral sorts out the majority of cases and it is only the minority that need to progress on to ICU. For this talk, I thought I would structure it around a case, a case that will run throughout the talk and we'll chat about both first and second line therapy or the BTS guidelines and then progress on to talk about that minority that do require ICU level care and what needs to be done. And I've labelled that as third line therapy or the intubated asthmatic. Finally, I will touch very briefly upon options in cases where things have been very refractory. So this is our case. We have a two-year-old girl who's atopic with a history of eczema and wheeze. She's on some inhalers, probably started by the GP, salbutamol and She's never been in hospital before. She's attended an ED in a large district general with respiratory distress. This is her assessment at A&E. So her airway is patent. She's hypoxic in room air and goes on to some high flow oxygen. She's working hard with widespread bilateral wheeze. She gets put onto some high flow oxygen, which brings her, or some non-rebreather oxygen, which brings her sats up. Otherwise, she's tachycardic, which looks like sinus on the monitor. She's warm and well perfused. She's annoyed, but she's alert. Her tummy's soft. Other than eczema, she's no other rashes, and she's got a normal temperature. So you all know what to do. You want to start some primary level therapy with bronchodilators, salbutamol and ipotropium. Some centres add in magnesium sulphate. They do that in, um, in Glasgow, certainly. I'm not sure the evidence is there. It's something that you can consider doing if you want to. The evidence is that you give three continuous back-to-back -back nebulizers and you give steroids to treat the initial, the initial exacerbation. And then you constantly reevaluate. So we've gone back to our patient after that has been done, but unfortunately she hasn't really improved. If anything, she may be slightly worse as her sats have dipped down, her air entry isn't as good, and she's slightly more agitated. You decide to progress on to second line therapy in line with the BTS guidelines, and you cite a cannula. You send bloods and you do a gas. And the one thing I want to point out about the gas result is the CO2. Although it doesn't look horrendous on that, this is a child who's working very hard is, is hyperventilating, so a normal CO2 is not a reassuring feature in that situation. You decide to do a chest x-ray in case you're missing anything and you don't see anything you don't expect. The chest is hyperinflated um, in keeping with the gas trapping nature of asthma and there's maybe some perihilar streaking. Perhaps this is a viral trigger to this presentation. So you proceed on to your second line therapy um, in those situations. And your choices are to give either magnesium sulfate, which is a bronchodilator. The one thing to be wary of when giving it IV as a bolus is that it also relaxes smooth muscles in the vascularity, so you can get a drop in blood pressure with it. It's typically used first as a bolus, and there is evidence that if used, um, it can reduce the need for hospital admission um, in acute asthmatics by up to 30%. 
Your next options, if that doesn't work, are to progress on to either aminophilin or salbutamol. Um, there's not a lot of evidence to choose between the two. I think from working in different units around the country, aminophilin tends to be the first choice. Um, this is given as a bolus and then as an infusion. You need to monitor levels with it for toxicity. Salbutamol is your other option, which is also given as a bolus and then an infusion. And I just want to highlight the infusion rates that the children's BNF does uh, state. So it says outside of a HDU environment, you can use one to two micrograms per kilo per minute, but as an escalating um, DHDU and ICU environment, you can go up to five micrograms per kilo per, per minute. That is actually quite important. And as an aside, in adult land, the maximum dose of IV salbutamol would be 20 micrograms per minute. So you can see in pediatrics, you could get very quickly above the adult maximum dose. For example, a child above 20 kilos, starting at the lowest dose in the BNF, starts above it. Is that important? Well, it could be. It increases your risk of side effects, common side effects being tachycardias and tachyarrhythmias and low potassium, as you know. The other thing that salbutamol does quite effectively at high doses is gives you a lactic acidosis through its effects on uh, glycolysis. Um, this can then lead to a bit of a diagnostic conundrum with a child who's working hard or working harder um, despite no wheeze in their chest. Is this a child who's deteriorating from their chest and, wee and tightening or is this a child who's actually got salbutamol toxicity and the lactate is driving um, their increased work of breathing and that's just something that you need to bear in mind and um, remember to avoid inappropriate escalation of care. So what has happened in our case? We've, we've given all of those therapies, but unfortunately, there's been no improvement. She's still tachypneic. She's still hypoxic on her 15 liters per minute. She's probably starting to tire now. Her air entry is poorer. She's got quieter wheeze because she's shifting less air and she's becoming increasingly drowsy. A blood gas is repeated and her CO2 has gone up to 10. So I think we'll all agree that in this situation, this child has, has failed medical management to this point and we need to go on and support this child further. At this point, the, the team contacted the, the retrieval service to make a referral. Um, ideally, that would be before intubation and ventilation in order to gain advice, but you wouldn't delay if the child was an extremist and you needed to get on. The next stage is providing support through intubation and positive pressure ventilation. The decision to do this isn't based on any one number, it's based on a clinical judgment. And really the triggers for you are refractory life-threatening features, such as refractory hypoxia, impending respiratory failure, or dropping GCS. The one unfortunate thing about intubating these children is that it isn't a magic fix for their pathology. Their airway obstruction is beyond the end of your ET tube and actually the process of intubating them can make them significantly worse for the next period of time. In fact, a lot of them run into complications in and around the intubation period. They're at risk of air leak with pneumothorax, they're at risk of hemodynamic instability with collapse and they're even at risk of cardiac arrest. And that is related to the underlying physiology that is happening in these patients. These patients are gas trapping in their chest, they're putting their their intrathoracic pressure up. They might have been unwell for a few days beforehand. They might be a bit dehydrated. So their preload is low on their heart because of reduced venous return. 
The gas trapping the chest also means that the heart is having to work against a higher uh, pulmonary vascular resistance and the myocardium is receiving blood that is acidotic and is hypoxic, so the myocardium is compromised as well. You're then going to come along and give medications that, to put the child to sleep and put an ET tube in, and that has the potential to worsen all of those features. You're going to give them an anaesthetic drug, an induction drug, which they all have some degree of negative inotropic effect in the myocardium. You're going to give them a muscle relaxant, which is going to stop them breathing spontaneously if the anaesthetic drug has not already done that, and that is going to drop their preload even further. And then you're going to go on to give them positive pressure ventilation, and there's an increased risk of gas trapping, hyperinflation at that point, which can further reduce preload and cause the, the child to uh, arrest. So, yeah, or cause, a, or cause an air leak. So it's a, it's a risky time. It's something I was chatting to one of the most senior paediatric intensivists over the weekend in, in uh, Glasgow, and he says this is one of the pathologies that scares him the most whenever it comes to intubating. So, how do you prepare for that? And I think preparation is the key. You want to get an experienced team together. This is not an airway to leave to your most junior colleagues to manage. This is an airway that you want your senior consultant anaesthetist in, your senior intensivist in as part of the team. You want to um, prep your team efficiently and have all the equipment, skills and drugs available that you will need. And in those situations, a checklist, an intubation checklist or an RSI checklist is very helpful in making sure that you don't forget anything. You want to pre-optimise um, your patient as much as possible by pre-oxygenating them as much as you can and by optimising their preload with the use of a fluid bolus prior to induction, having extra fluid boluses available for a potentially um, rocky period after intubation. You also want to be aware of the common causes of deterioration following intubation. So you want to have equipment and personnel available should the child develop a pneumothorax to deal with that by needling the chest, rules allocated should that happen. And you want to have people and drugs available should the child become hemodynamically unstable or arrest, and again, rules um, allocated for that. I've got at the bottom left what is probably our most commonly used anaesthetic cocktail in PICU. Um, a combination of either fentanyl, ketamine and rocuronium as part of a modified RSI. You could even drop the fentanyl from this, from this intubation. I think the ketamine is your key drug for intubating. Ketamine is your most hemodynamically stable as we heard and I'm sure we'll hear throughout the day, but it also is a bronchodilator so it may help you break any remaining bronchospasm that is there. The dose would be two micrograms per kilo, but if you're really hemodynamically unstable, one microgram per kilo may be all that is needed. Just a quick correction on the ketamine dose. It should be one to two milligrams per kilogram, not micrograms. Again, you can use a, a muscle relaxant of your choice. My preference would be for rocuronium and an RSI dose. These children are not going to tolerate an apneic period as part of an RSI, so you are going to have to bag them. And I would advocate that you put a cuffed ET tube in in all of them. The reason being that after you intubate them, they will need probably huge inspiratory pressures and an uncuffed tube with a leak will mean you'll not be able to effectively ventilate them. In terms of ventilating them after you've put the ET tube in and before you've put them on the ventilator, your anxiety levels will probably be very high. Your adrenaline levels will probably be very high. It's very easy to bag very fast. 
these children need prolonged expiratory phases to empty their chests. So you need to bag slowly, lift the chest, and then give them a good period of time watching the chest to let it fall before you give the next breath. Otherwise, you can worsen the gas trapping and potentially result in uh, progressive hemodynamic instability. The next stage is that once you've got your ET tube in, is to move on to putting them on the ventilator. And Chris has touched upon a number of the topics that I'm going to talk about here. Unfortunately, there's no definitive study I can point to and tell you this study shows this is how to do it. And a lot of it is based on experience and history. <coughs> Typically, we will present, a, we will use a pressure mode of ventilation, something with a decelerating flow curve. Um, and that is so that you get a good, better tidal volume for a lower pressure. So typically I have used pressure control ventilation. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be surprised to need exceedingly high peak inspiratory pressures to ventilate these patients. And Chris has already touched upon a recent case where he needed pressures in the 40s. That is because these children still have airway obstruction causing uh, resistance in their airways. So you need that high peak inspiratory pressure to overcome that resistance and to give you a tidal volume. There, you might be nervous at that point that you're causing trauma to the lungs, but actually beyond the obstruction, the, the alveoli aren't seeing that full pressure. They're seeing what's called the plateau pressure, which is lower in uh, obstructive airways disease. And if you're nervous and want to check what the plateau pressure is, you can do that through an inspiratory hold on the ventilators. I've got an example of that on the next slide. And you should aim to keep your plateau pressures ideally below 30 to 35 to avoid barotrauma. PEEP is a very controversial issue in the ventilating of the asthmatic. And if you read the papers out there, they range from how, advising that you give no PEEP whatsoever because these children gas trap and generate their own PEEP or auto PEEP. And by adding additional PEEP in, you're just um, obstructing the gas outflow through to people who argue that well, you should, be, you should measure their own PEEP and set your PEEP just below it so that you keep the airways open as long as possible through expiration. I don't think anybody has come to any great decisions about that and different units do different things. In terms of for simplicity in a paralyzed, ventilated asthmatic early in the course for an initial setting, I would suggest using a low PEEP, something like four or five centimeters. And if you're getting into trouble with gas trapping, then we can revisit it. These are just some examples from um, recently in the unit of an inspiratory hold maneuver and an expiratory hold maneuver that I've found. So the one on the left, this is a child who's being ventilated on pressure control ventilation. They're on big pressures, 30 over eight. And the first breath shows that. With the second breath then, I um, inspiratory hold maneuver is held. The patient is held in inspiration and the pressures equilibrate with the alveoli. And you can see that actually because of the obstruction that is present, the plateau pressure that the alveoli are seeing is much lower. So you can be reassured that the pressures you're delivering are not as injurious as you worried about. The example on the right is of an expiratory hold maneuver. The patient is being ventilated with a PEEP of five and then they are held in expiration expiration. As you can see that there's a, a slow increase in that PEEP because there's some gas trapping and that is exerting some pressure as it equilibrates with the gas that is in the alveoli and they have an, a, an, a total PEEP of 8 giving an auto PEEP of 3. So 
In those situations, you may use that to target, but actually we're probably doing okay and we're not trapping too much. It's not 15 or something like that. The other key point in ventilating asthmatics is the use of a low respiratory rate. Um, Chris has already touched on this. Um, the normal IE ratio of being one to two seconds in a ventilated child. In these children, you need to give much longer expiratory times one, uh, with a ratio of one to three or even up to one to five. To achieve that, you'll need to give lower respiratory rates than you would normally give a child of that age, something 10 breaths per minute, for example, to a young child. You will have to tolerate permissive hypercapnia, and you might need to give buffers in order to, um, to tolerate that with the use of things like FAM. Um, and you can monitor it with um, your flow time curves on your ventilator. Here's an example of one where there's been gas trapping. So the inspiratory flow is above the white line, the breath goes in, and then the expiratory flow is below the white line, the breath coming out. And you can see that the breath coming out hasn't reached baseline before the next breath is given, indicating that all, not all of the gas has come out and that there's gas trapping in there. And what you want to do to relieve that is either drop your respiratory rate or potentially drop your eye time, but you're going to need that eye time to get your volume in. So it's dropping your respiratory rate. Other simple things, oxygen, you're going to need to give them oxygen. If you're having to give them a lot of oxygen, oxygen is harmful at high, high levels. You might consider accepting lower SATs to achieve that. You um, will want to get a chest x-ray to check your ET tubes in the right position and to exclude an air leak. If the skills are available locally and you're worried about an air leak, as Chris has shown, you can do a quick ultrasound just to exclude it with the use of lung sliding. Um, for those of you who are from an adult background and do ultrasound in adults, in kids, it's exactly the same signs and you will get better views. So you should, you should feel confident that you can use it. Otherwise, I would advise you continue with your ongoing first and second line therapies and keep them all in an end tidal trace as well for safety. And your end tidal trace can give you further information. Normally it's square, but in, in airway obstruction, such as in asthma, uh, it gives you that slurred up stroke and can even look like a, a shark's fin. Sometimes it's impossible, however, to stop there being gas trapped. Um, and that will progressively lead to hemodynamic instability and cardiovascular collapse. In those situations, what you might consider doing is disconnecting the patient from the ventilator. You might hear a hiss from the ET tube as the gas escapes, and then you can compress the chest to squeeze out any remaining trapped air. If that doesn't resolve the cardiovascular instability, what you should perhaps worry about and consider is has this patient developed a pneumothorax, which is tensioning. Other systems management with these patients. Um, these patients can be managed usually with two peripheral lines for transport and with an arterial line for monitoring of their hemodynamic status. They don't routinely need a central line. However, if there's persistent hemodynamic instability, requiring multiple fluid boluses and then ultimately going on to a vasoactive drug infusion, um, a central line may, may be required. The preference would probably be to cite a femoral line because I don't think an iatrogenically induced uh, tension and pneumothorax would be well welcomed in these situations. 
In terms of what vasoactive drug to use, I think adrenaline is a good shout um, because it has bronchodilatory properties as well. If you're still on IV salbutamol at high doses at that point, you might consider stopping that because the combination will cause your lactate to go quite high. You need to keep these children asleep. Um, traditionally, in PICU land, we use morphine midazolam, but morphine causes, um, in other types of cases, but morphine causes histamine release and can worsen the asthmatic features. So some people will argue that maybe you use fentanyl and midazolam, or maybe even better still, you could use ketamine with midazolam, ketamine being a bronchodilator and sedative, and the midazolam just to smooth it out. I would suggest you keep the children paralyzed until the transport team arrives um, with a rock infusion or with rock boluses, as we are going to keep them paralyzed until we get them into PICU and then lift their paralysis. If you're paralyzing them, they'll need a urinary catheter to monitor their urine output. Keep them nil by mouth, put an NG tube in to de decompress their stomach, and put them on the IV fluids with um, isotonic fluids, your choice of 0.9 saline, or if you have it, plasmolite 147. That should be started at 75% maintenance, and because of all the drugs you've given and all of the side effects of them causing low potassium, you will need to give them potassium. And in fact, you might actually need a central line to give them very high, strong potassium to manage that. Routinely, you wouldn't start antibiotics in these cases, but if um, you're worried about infection, um, please culture them before starting whatever your local policy's chest cover is. So, if despite all of that, you're struggling, what I would suggest is keep in contact with the retrieval team, keep in contact for advice. We'll be able to review what you've done up to this point and try and troubleshoot it while they're en route. In some cases, there's, uh, there's evidence in the literature of using alternative things. There's not a lot of evidence for alternative things. The anaesthetists in the room will be very uh, comfortable with using volatile agents, such as sevoflurane, which has bronchodilatory properties, and that can be used at low doses, but you have to be aware that it may cause their hemodynamics to go off with vasodilatation as well. You can start them on the continuous magnesium sulfate infusion and titrate their magnesium levels up above 1.5, but again, it causes vasodilatation and can cause your, your uh, cardiovascular status to deteriorate. We've heard Chris talk about the problems with mucus plugging and about um, the need for regular physio, get physios in to help you out if you think that's the cause. What, there is also evidence that it, you could instill DNAs to try and break that down. Um, that can be nebulized, it can be instilled down the ET tube, or if the skills and equipment locally exist, you could do it directly via bronchoscopy. Um, and then, as Julie was saying, bronchiolitis is a reversible condition, so at the end of the road you would consider extracorporeal life support, and that is the same with, with asthma. It is something that would be a candidate for it. These are all things that have their problems in the District General. They're not things that we would be expecting you to do and may not be at all available to you to do on your own, and it might, as I say, if you're struggling, phone a friend, phone the retrieval team for advice. So what happened with our case? So um, the district general team went ahead and they intubated her. They gave her ketamine and following intubation, actually she wasn't too bad. Seemingly the, whatever was causing her airway obstruction had broken. Maybe it was the ketamine induction. The retrieval team arrived and collected her, packaged her, brought her down to PICU. We slowly weaned off all of her bronchodilators over the next few days and she completed a course of steroids. They had started antibiotics on her, so we did a blind bronchoalveolar lavage 
that came back negative for bacteria but did identify a virus as a cause. Uh, so we stopped her antibiotics when we got that. Um, and she was successfully extubated. She was extubated to high flu at day three, given her risks. And that was weaned off over the next 36 hours where she was discharged to the ward for the paediatricians to work her up for a presumed underlying diagnosis of atopic asthma. All right, so that's everything I have for you. Thank you. Thank you.